That's where Christmas starts in the beginning. It has always been in the heart and mind of God. And uh, so we come to the beginning this morning in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I grew up in uh, East Tennessee, in Knoxville, and uh, many people from all over the world would come to Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge. Many of you have vacationed there. And, uh, but for us, it was sort of a, something we were used to being there. We'd seen it all and done it all, and, and uh, we always uh, enjoyed seeing tourists come in and talk about the mountains and how beautiful a place it was. One of the attractions there in Pigeon Forge was a place called, uh, I, I can't exactly remember the title of it, the Christmas Village or something of that nature. And I mean, this was a place where people came all year long and they would go to the Christmas place. And maybe that was what it was called. I, yeah, my wife's shaking her head. And so that means, yes, it's the Christmas place. And people would come and, you know, I, they, they would shop there and all kinds of trinkets and decorations and, and, uh, it was really, really a, a, a busy place. People enjoy Christmas, don't they? Every year after Christmas, my wife goes to Cracker Barrel. She wants to clean out the, the remaining decorations that they have left there. I think they have a sale. Uh, people enjoy Christmas, and they like to celebrate it. In fact, some people celebrate it in July, Christmas in July. You've heard of that, right? And um, uh, they say that the roots of that begin when people thinking about how that in the southern hemisphere um, people celebrate Christmas really in the middle of their summer. And uh, so people began to celebrate Christmas in July. Uh, oftentimes in the olden days, churches would uh, use that opportunity to gather gifts for missionaries and send gifts along to missionaries in a time when transit took uh, a lot longer than it does today. Uh, and, and they would ensure that those gifts would get there by Christmas. So a lot of those Christmas in July celebrations. Uh, what we have here as we come to Genesis chapter 3 is Christmas in Eden, and that's the subject of the message this morning, Christmas in Eden. We think about Christmas as it was celebrated in Bethlehem, but I want you to know that it was promised in Eden. And so we look at this passage this morning, and I want you to note a few things with me. First of all, I want you to see the cunning serpent. The cunning serpent. Now, I believe the Bible is the Word of God, don't you? Would you say amen if you believe that? Amen. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. I believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I believe that God did it, as the Bible says, in six days, six 24-hour periods. Now, there are scientists who think they're smarter than God, and they want to tell God that it took him millions of years to accomplish the feat that he said, I did in six days. But I, I believe the Bible. In fact, the Bible says that when God saw what he had made on the first day, it was good. And on the second day, it was good. 
On the third day, it was good. And on the fourth day, it was good. On the fifth day, it was good. And on the final day, the sixth day of his creation, of course, he rested on the seventh, but on the final sixth day, it was good. Do you know that everything God made was good? That means it was right. It was perfect. There was no flaws in it. And God made man to be in perfect harmony and fellowship with him. God made man to live forever. And God placed man in a garden, a beautiful garden. God gave man, Adam, a job and a stewardship. God gave Adam a relationship with himself. Then he gave him a relationship with his wife, Eve, who God made for him. They had everything they could ever desire to have. Every need was met. There was no sin. There was no sickness. It was, as God said, good. But then comes the cunning serpent, the devil. Notice it in verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He was sneaky, this serpent. And the Bible tells us, in uh, verse number one, and he said unto the woman, yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Here's what the devil did. He questioned the reliability of God's word. Did God really say that? Now, in the biblical record, we find that God told Adam, Adam, every tree of the garden you can eat, but the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. And the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. As we follow the chronology of, of that record, we find that Eve came later, and perhaps it was Adam that communicated this message to Eve. It may be that Eve did not hear it from God directly, but she heard it from her husband. And so what does Satan do? He uses an occasion to question the reliability of God's word. By the way, that's his tactic today. Can we trust the Bible? Can we trust that God's word says what it says? Hath God said, did he really say that, Eve? You shall not eat of the tree of the garden. And the woman answered in verse number two, and the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. Now he's not just questioning the reliability of it, but he's questioning the accuracy of it. Oh, fuddy-duddy, God's not going to kill you. That's not accurate. You're not going to die. You can eat that fruit. It's no problem. Then notice verse 5. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Not only does he question the reliability of God's word, not only does he deny the accuracy of God's word, but here he impugns the character of God himself. Here he says to you, God is holding out on you, Eve. Listen, Eve, you should be able to do whatever you want to do. It is your life. Enjoy it. 
to the fullest. Don't let anybody put a restriction on you. Do you know what God's doing? He's holding out on you. He knows that if you eat of that fruit, you'll be like him. And so she listened. Not only in verse 6 do we see that she listened, but she looked. Oh, the devil likes to get us to look, doesn't he? Notice what happens, verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. I mean, that, that fruit looks good to me. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing unhealthy about that. In fact, it looks really a little bit more appetizing than some of this other fruit. And that it was pleasant to the eyes. It's beautiful fruit. Beautiful. And a tree desired to be, or a tree desired rather to make one wise. Oh, wow. I mean, I'm going to be like God. I, I won't need God to tell me what to do. I won't have to meet with him and follow his rules and restrictions. I'll be able to make the rules myself. You see, John writes to us in his epistle, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He goes on to say to us that all that is in the world are three things the world has to offer us. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And those are the three tactics that Satan used to draw Eve away from God's truth and to transgress God's law and to take the fruit. The lust of the flesh, it was good for food. The lust of the eyes, it was pleasant to the eyes. The, the pride of life, it was desired to be made or to make one wise. And so what did she do? She contemplated, she listened, and she looked and she lusted, and she took the fruit and she did eat, and she gave it to her husband with her. And what did he do? He did eat. He did eat. The cunning serpent. By the way, he's at work today, isn't he? To deceive us, to draw us away from God and God's truth to tell us that outside of the law of God and the commandments of God, outside of Christ, there are better opportunities for us. He's a cunning devil, seeking to lure us and, and to, to deceive us by, by appearing to be someone who really cares about us and by appearing to be somebody who, 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 who is smooth in his presentation who is uh, appealing and attractive and who appears to be on our side, but he's not. He's a serpent. And what he desires to do is destroy your life. And into God's perfect creation, the cunning serpent slithered. We see the second thing. We see the curse of sin. Eve now, being seduced by the devil, takes the fruit, gives to her husband. He eats. And here we see the result, verse 7. And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Immediately, something changed. They sinned against God. Their eyes were opened. They knew that they were naked. 
A change took place. Innocence was lost. Sin came in. Guilt came in. Shame came in. The robes of righteousness that had once adorned them were no more. They were exposed as sinners. And what did they do? They sought to make their own covering. The Bible said they made themselves aprons sewing fig leaves together. They attempted to cover their nakedness. We see in verse number eight, they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife did something they had never done before. When they heard the voice of the Lord coming to them, they could hear God approaching them. Every other time, because they were in perfect harmony and fellowship with him, they drew near to the Lord. But not this time, because something had changed. They hid themselves. Imagine they tried to hide from their creator. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God, verse number nine, called unto Adam. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Here are these people that knew him firsthand. He made them. He breathed into their nostrils the breath of life. He provided everything that they would ever need in a perfect world, in a perfect place. They had perfect union and fellowship with God, yet they disobeyed the Lord. And when they did, they became sinners. And as sinners, God cannot dwell with a sinner. And so the Spirit of God departed from them. The life of God departed from them. The fellowship of God that they had once enjoyed was no more. God could have left them in that garden. He could have left them alone. And had he done so, he would have been just to do it. But in his love and in his mercy, he did something glorious. He called them. Have you heard the voice of God? Aren't you glad he didn't leave you in your sin and your shame? Aren't you glad he didn't leave you in your despair and in your hopelessness? He called. And he said unto them, where art thou? Now he already knew where they were. He wasn't asking for his own information. He was asking so that they would make examination of them, their, their own selves. Where are you, Adam? What have you done, Adam? Well, Lord, we knew that we were naked and we heard you coming and we didn't want you to see us in our nakedness. And, and so we ran and we hid ourselves. And the Lord said in verse 11, who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I am commanded, where I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? You know, I always, I, as, a, as a boy, I never liked it when my mom asked me if I did something when she knew I'd done it. Parents learn that trick, don't we? Yeah. Did you do what I told you to do today? No. Did you do the thing I told you not to do? Yes. And that looming sense of guilt 
and shame, that impending sense of judgment that fills our hearts when we are confronted with our sin. We don't like that. That's why we run from God. I'm amazed people when they are struggling so, oftentimes instead of drawing nearer to God, instead of attending church more faithfully, oftentimes they drift away from the church. Oh, I'm going through a hard time, Pastor. I, I just don't really. No, that's the time you need to be in church more than ever. That's the time you need to be closer to God. That's the time you need to bring yourselves into the audience of the preaching of God's word and into the fellowship of God's family, into the Sunday school class where you can share your burdens in prayer, where you can be strengthened by friendships and fellowship, where you can hear the teaching and preaching of the word of God. But there's something in us that's called sin that when we struggle, we just have a tendency to hide. Because we don't want to be honest and we don't want to be accountable and we don't want to be confronted. And a church provides accountability. What a blessing the church is. Well, I come for comfort. Well, that's wonderful. But you also need accountability. I'm so grateful for the men and for the women throughout my life who would say to me, hey, there's some things you need to do here, buddy. I didn't always like it, but I needed it. So do we all. He called. Hast thou eaten? And the man said, verse 12, well, I did, but it's not my fault. The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. <laughs> Sounds like us, doesn't it? And the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, well, it's not my fault. The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And so God pronounced the curse unto the woman in verse number 16. What did he say? I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall bring it forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field and the sweat of thy face. Shalt thou eat bread? You see, here's the curse. This is the curse. This is what ruined creation. You know what sin does? It ruins Sin ruins. Oh, there may be pleasure in it for a season, but sin destroys everything it touches. And the world has spent the last 6,000 years trying to remedy the ruin without God. The feminist movement, they don't like what God said to Eve. So what do they do? They try to remedy it their way. Scots and ortho, they don't like the fact that the ground is, is uh, cursed. So what do they do? They try to remedy it their way. And all along throughout history, what is it that we try to do? We try to soften the blow of the curse. We seek to remedy it the way that we desire to remedy it, but we do not, in our natural condition, desire to come to God 
and allow him to remedy it for us. You see, as I said, sin ruins everything it touches. Ultimately, because of sin, Adam and Eve were removed from the garden and from the presence of God. And ultimately, sin resulted in Adam's death. Notice again in verse 19, at the very close of the verse, he says, uh, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. There came a day when Adam died. Now that day in the garden, immediately he died in his spirit. Progressively he died in his soul, and ultimately he died in his body. Before he died, Adam and Eve gave birth to two boys, Cain and Abel. Cain was a tiller of the ground. He decided he was going to do things the way he wanted to do. He wasn't going to be obedient to God. Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Abel brought the right sacrifice. Cain didn't. Cain, filled with jealousy and rage and anger against God and resentment against his brother, killed his brother because God would not receive his, that being Cain's sacrifice, because it was Cain's prescribed way, not God's. Later on, they gave birth to another son, Seth. I want you to imagine Seth comforting his mother at the graveside of Adam. Next to it, the grave of Abel. Cain's not there. He's on the run. He's a vagabond in the earth. And I want you to go into the heart and mind of Eve who walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden who enjoyed everything that God had for her to enjoy and don't you think her heart was filled with great regret that she ever took that fruit and she ate it and there in the ground was the evidence of the ruinous work of sin, the curse of sin. And then Seth, perhaps drawing her a little tighter, offering to her a handkerchief, said, oh, mother, remember the promise of the son. That's the third thing we see this morning, the coming son. You see, the promise of Christmas came in the garden, the Garden of Eden. The Bible says in verse 15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Here is the promise of the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. What does God say? Well, he curses the serpent in verse 14. And then he says, there's going to be a struggle between the serpent and between man, the seed of the woman. And from the seed of the woman, there will arise a son. And what will that son do? He will bruise thy head. Literally with his heel, he will stomp on the head of the serpent and he will crush the serpent. Yes, the serpent will get in a blow. He'll bruise the heel, but the son will prevail by crushing the head of the serpent. The coming son, the coming son. 
What does God say of the son? He would be born of the seed of the woman. Why is that so important? Why is that so significant? Because normally people would say he would be the seed of Adam, the seed of the man. But what's the problem with Adam? Adam is a sinner. He can't be the son of Adam and be the Savior because in Adam all have sinned. So he couldn't be the son of Adam. In order for him to be the son of God, he had to be the seed of the woman. You see, when Mary heard the announcement of the angel, and he said, God has chosen you. You're highly favored among women. You're going to have a child, and and that child is going to be the son of the highest. She said, how can this be? I'm a virgin. I don't know a man. He said, oh, the power of the Holy Ghost will overshadow you. You're going to have a child not as the act or a result of a natural relationship. You're going to have a child as a result of a supernatural work of the Holy Ghost of God. And this child, born of a virgin, is the seed of the woman. He was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. And she did. And she bore a son in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And he is the son of the highest, the son of God. As we follow God's revelation from beginning to end, we see that God appeared to Abraham and called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he said, I'm going I'm to establish a nation through you, through your seed, the seed of a man who at the time was 75, his wife 65. He had no children. God said, you're going to have a child. And by the way, it would be 25, laters, 25 years later, rather, 25 years later before he did. God said, I'm going to make a nation out of you, Abraham. I don't even have a son. You're going to. And he did. He revealed that the son would come through the seed of Abraham, the nation of Israel. Then he revealed to Jacob in the book of Genesis that he would come through the tribe of Judah. Jacob had 12 sons, and it would be through Judah that this son would One day come, the scepter would not depart from Judah. Later on, he revealed to David, who was the king, that through his seed, there would arise a son who would occupy the throne of Israel forever. The coming son. That's the promise that God made, the promise of Christmas. And here we are 2,000 years after he came. And what do we wait for? the fulfillment of another promise. What's that promise? That is the promise that he is coming again. He came the first time to redeem us. He's coming the second time to rule, and he will rule on this earth for a 1,000 years. He will establish righteous judgment. Listen, the Democrat and Republican Party and the news media and all the things that we deal with today, done away. Truth will prevail. Everybody's clamoring for justice. You know when they'll get it? When Jesus is on the throne. And he's coming again. And guess who's coming with him? All those in heaven that we love and miss. And we'll be together on this earth for a thousand years. The coming son. That was the message of Christmas. And then finally we see the conquering Savior the conquering Savior. Walk with me, if you would, from the graveside 
Seth and his family, his brothers and sisters, his mother Eve leaving the graveside, hearts broken, two of their loved ones in the ground, one of their sons gone away from God with a broken heart. They return to the home. And what do they rejoice in? The fact that the coming son will also be a conquering savior. You see, all those years of their lives, what did Adam and Eve and their children struggle with? They struggled with the serpent. And we struggle with him day in and day out. We struggle with our flesh. We struggle with sin. And we get weary in the struggle, don't we? I had a man tell me this week, he said, Pastor, I've got to get in the secret place every day. If I don't get in the secret place, I'm just not going to make it. What did he mean by that? He meant come into the presence of God, commune with the Lord, come into the garden. That's how it's described for us in the song, the song of Solomon. Come into the garden and fellowship and commune with God. Receive strength, hear his word, commune with him, lay the Holy Spirit, fill and empower us because we live in a world that is hostile and we have a flesh that's an ally to this world. It opposes us. How are we going to please God and live in victory? The only way we can do it is in the power of the conquering Savior. You see, the promise was that he would defeat the devil. I can hear Seth say to his mom, Mom, the sun's coming. Remember what God said to you in the garden? The sun is coming, and he's going to defeat the old serpent. And he did. You remember when Jesus went out? into the wilderness, who met him there? He'd fasted for 40 days. Who met him there? The serpent, the devil. And what did he do? He tempted him. In what way? The same way he tempted Eve. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And do you know that Jesus prevailed in the hour of temptation? And how did he prevail? the same way we can if we will trust the Lord and be obedient to him by using a powerful weapon that God has given us, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Jesus answered every temptation of the devil with three words. You know them, don't you? Say them with me. It is written. Well, Pastor, I don't feel too good today. I'm really struggling. Then what we need to find out is what's written about that. And that thereby we strengthen ourselves and fortify ourselves, and thereby we defeat and quench the fiery darts of the wicked. Jesus Christ overcame the devil. He was tempted in all points like as we, yet without what? Sin. Not only did he overcome the devil, he overcame sin. He who knew no sin, the Bible said God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. He overcame the devil. He overcame sin. He overcame death. <laughs> they took his body off the cross and carried him into the tomb and laid him there. But on the third day, the stone was rolled away and Jesus came out of the tomb victorious. He overcame death. And he gives life to all who believe. He's the conquering Savior. Everything 
that Adam and Eve lost in that garden, Jesus restored. And the only way you and I can have life eternal and victory over the ruinous effect of sin is to bow our hearts and our heads to the King of kings and the Lord of lords to confess that we're sinners, to confess that he's the Son of God and to call his name and to trust him as Savior. Have you done that? Maybe you haven't done that, but you need to. The greatest gift God has ever offered is the gift of salvation. Don't leave this world without that gift. Receive it. How do I receive it? You receive it by faith. Believing God. Trusting God. Calling on him. I hope you'll do so today if you haven't. Dear Christian friend, you say, well, I know I've got that gift, but I'm really struggling with this devil. Welcome to the club. This church is full of struggling people. Some of us, maybe not as much as others. Maybe some of us worse than what we might imagine. Maybe we're just doing a pretty good job of hiding it. But we know We know what we contend with. And we need God to help us. The good news is he's there. Don't make your own way. Don't even try to make your own way. Submit to him and come to him. Receive his strength. Receive his comfort. Receive his grace. By the way, when the shepherds saw the heavenly host... They went to see if the thing were true. They knew it was, of course. There they found the babe in a manger. And the Bible says that when they left there, they didn't just go out and keep it to themselves. They made known the saying, may God help us because we know people who've been bitten by the serpent. We work with them. We live with them. Let's give the message. Christmas in Eden. 